this is a fundamental principle of the spiritual life. And it's one of the first things, in my opinion, that should be taught to a new believer in Jesus Christ. Restoration of fellowship does not mean that there are no temporal consequences to the sin. The nature and duration of post-confession discipline is God's call. And he will make that call in accordance with the totality of his infinite perfection. There are times when we sin and God chooses not to discipline us. And we can say, thank you, Lord, for that. But there are also times when we sin and we confess that sin and still discipline follows. And if we were wise, we would also thank God for that. This really shouldn't be that hard to understand. Our parents did the same thing with us. We've done the same thing with our own children. Sometimes, and I'm sorry, is the end of it. That's all it takes. Other times, I'm sorry, got us back on the right track, back in fellowship with our parents, but they still had to lovingly administer discipline because they wanted to drive the point home that whatever behavior we engaged in was inappropriate and it was unacceptable and it wasn't to be repeated. So they knew in order to get that point across, they had to discipline us. And then there were other times when they realized in their wisdom that the natural consequences of what we did were painful and severe enough that no additional discipline was necessary. Parents are fallible in this area. God is not. His discipline, like everything else about him, is perfect. In God's view, David's sin with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, was so egregious that discipline was necessary even after his confession to make certain that David would never go that way again. Of course, David's going to sin again, but adultery and murder wouldn't be among his future failures. We now begin, having studied the problems that David encountered through his own volition, the challenge that God brought to David through the prophet Nathan, David's confession, and the intensity of his confession in Psalm 51, we now return back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and study David's discipline. The discipline will not all come at once. It's going to be spread out over a number of years. The child of the adultery will die. One of David's sons will rape one of David's daughters. Another son will murder the son who committed the rape. And the son who murdered his brother will lead a rebellion against his father, and he's going to die in the process. These four episodes may account for the semi-prophetic comment that David makes in verse 6 of chapter 12 after being told a parable by Nathan. Actually, let me read verses 5 and 6. After this parable is told, the text goes on to say, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. David's so upset by this parable that Nathan has told him 
that he pronounces a judgment on the man that's consistent with the Mosaic law. Of course, under Mosaic standards, David should have been executed. Under Mosaic standards, the man in the parable, while he was a jerk and he had done a really bad thing, didn't deserve to be executed. But David pronounces a, a verdict on him of execution, which Nathan overlooks. But then he pronounces this fourfold idea. This man ought to have to make restitution fourfold. And that goes right straight back to Mosaic law. It's either fourfold or, fourfold or fivefold, depending on the particular situation. So David's acting consistently here, at least with what he believes to be the truth, with this other guy did. All the while, at least at this point in verses 5 and 6, not realizing that the parable is really about himself. We studied back then that we often have 20-20 vision when it comes to the sins and the failures of other people. But when it comes to our own, we're totally blind. And David's a perfect example of that. So it may be that those are the four episodes that count as the fourfold restitution that David will have to make. It also may be that the fourfold nature of the discipline included the death of four sons. First, the unnamed child. One of his sons named Amnon. He's the one that raped Tamar. Absalom. And then later on, Adonijah. Although, in my view, Adonijah is probably not part of the fourfold discipline because Adonijah dies after David is dead. Solomon has him executed. So I think most of our discipline is going to take place in this life, not after we're gone. And so I, I would hold those other four to be the fourfold. But either way, David is going to suffer greatly. When we teach rightly, with conviction, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we always stress that there are no exceptions to that rule. There's no sin that's excluded. And often people will retort, you're trying to tell me, you mean to tell me, are you trying to say that David commit, could commit murder and he just got away with it? No, of course not. That's not what I'm trying to say. The Bible doesn't say that. If you think that David got away with murder and nothing bad happened to him, I'd like to invite you to stick around for the next five or six weeks. Because you're going to see a man who confessed his sin, who repented of it intensely, still go through, even after he confessed and repented, still go through intense discipline. Discipline that you wouldn't want to wish on anybody else, at the very least the death of three sons, even if we don't count Adonijah, and the rape of a daughter. You also see that one of the things that David did was violate this whole family unit of Uriah the Hittite. Do you see where all the discipline comes? One thing about God is he knows exactly how to discipline us. He knows how to do it right, and he hits right where it hurts. And sometimes the discipline of God is a bit ironic in nature. And so since David always had this problem with the family unit, he was a great king, but we're going to see over the next several weeks, not necessarily a great dad, not a great father which is a shame. A great man in many ways, but family life, his personal life in terms of his, his dealings with women and his dealings with his children were not his strong point. This is the area that God's going to pour this discipline out, making the point. Now, just to get a little bit of context again, go back to verse 13. After David has been told that he was the one that did this, and he is stunned by the, by the news. Verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. He should have been under death sentence. But immediately Nathan tells him, you should not die. For the last four weeks, we've been spending some time in Psalm 51. 
Psalm 51 should be inserted right between the phrase, I have sinned against the Lord, and then Nathan said to David. Psalm 51 is a reflection on that nanosecond or two, or perhaps second, where David has made the confession and he is awaiting word from Nathan that he would be forgiven. It's written sometime later and expands on that short period of time. But now we're back to, to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we see David has confessed. Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. He's removed it. You shall not die. Then in verse 14, the discipline really gets going in full swing. Then in verse 14, we have this discipline. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And then verse 15, the first part says, So Nathan returned to his house. There are some underlying textual issues in verse 14. There's probably a scribal addition to the Masoretic text. I don't want to go into that, get bogged down in those details. But my point in bringing it up is that the NET Bible and the ESV probably have a better translation than the New American Standard and the NIV here. Instead of the text reading, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the text probably should read, a more correct rendering would probably be, because you have treated the Lord with such contempt. Now, I know that's a pretty big difference, and since most of us use the New American Standard or the NIV, that's why I bring it up. I wouldn't bring these things up unless it affected us directly. But there is a little bit of difference here I hope you would see. Instead of the reason that David is going to get so much discipline is because he's given other people an opportunity to blaspheme, which is a legitimate reason for discipline when we abuse our ambassadorship. What this text is really saying is that, David, because you treated the Lord with such contempt, this is the discipline you're going to have. David's actions were an affront to the holiness of God. This is going to hit home because when we sin, we are treating the Lord with contempt. We treat with contempt the God of the universe who for his part demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on our behalf. That's who we treat contempt when we willfully and openly rebel against God. Christ died for us. We rebel against him. We treat him with contempt. He died for us. That's quite a contrast, wouldn't you say? It's actually quite embarrassing on our part to treat him that way. Then the discipline begins in earnest in the last part of 15. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. One more textual issue or one more translation note. The last part of verse 15 actually reads, the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. The original is actually a little stronger. Instead of that Uriah's widow bore to David, you might say, what's the difference there? I think there is a difference. It's a subtlety, but it's a difference. The Holy Spirit, writing through the human agent here, wants to remind us, wants to make, make sure that we understand that this child was a result of a relationship that occurred way before she was Uriah's widow. She was Uriah's wife when this child was conceived. When the child was conceived, Bathsheba, if you'll allow me, belonged to Uriah. 
not to David. And God is not going to honor David's disgrace by giving him this son. The line of the Messiah is not going to come through the child of the adultery. The way that this verse is worded deliberately reminds us of this fact. One quick note, you might have noticed it already. Bathsheba is not mentioned by name, at least from now, until after the death of the child is reported. People wonder about that, and they say, well, shouldn't, wouldn't she have grieved greatly as well? Of course she would. She probably grieved every bit as much or more than David grieved. But this narrative is not really about Bathsheba. This narrative is about King David, and so that's why David is stressed. Then in verses 16 and 17, David therefore inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground. But he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. The elders that are mentioned here, the elders of his household, are probably his senior staff. If if David was the president of the United States, these would have been the people that worked in the Oval Office with him. His chief of staff. People like that. These weren't just everyday servants that probably wouldn't dare go touch the king. These were his closest friends, his closest associates. David therefore inquired of the Lord for the child. David was a man of intensity. Here, that intensity is expressed in his petition to God to spare this child. He'd been told, you'll recall from just a few minutes ago, that the child's going to die. But David had to wonder, would God change his mind? If I pray intensely, could I alter this decree? Was it a possibility? David didn't know. So he prayed. David had been told by the prophet Nathan that the child was terminal. But once he's back in fellowship, once he's repented of that sin and he is on fire for the Lord again, even though he's in this state of discipline, even though the prophet told him that the child was terminal, David falls to his face and prays for the healing of this child. Because he just doesn't know. Maybe the Lord will see fit to change his mind. The contrast I would like you to to, to draw for you tonight is sometimes doctors say that we're terminal. With the best evidence, the best medical evidence that they have, based upon all the statistics that they have, based upon their experience, based upon the tests that have been run, they say, well, this person is terminal. Go get your affairs in order. Sometimes they're right, but you know what? Sometimes they're wrong, too. So what should our responsibility be? To pray as intensely as David prayed until the Lord takes the person home. There does come a point in time, it's happened in my life, I know it's happened in yours, where somebody is obviously a few moments away from death, or a day or two away from death. And it's the processes that start, the physiological processes. I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray that the Lord would take them peacefully, that the Lord would comfort the family. I'm not saying that's wrong at all. But all I'm saying is that, that David would pray this when a prophet tells us, we ought not to be afraid just because some tests show another thing. So David inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. Since it's very unlikely that the king's palace would have had dirt floors, 
this fasting and prostration must have occurred outside in semi-public view. This is an act of humiliation on David's part. People would normally see the king like this. But he does this outside the palace. At this point in time, David is inconsolable. This is not an act for the people. He is inconsolable. The text presents David as deeply grieved. Perhaps as grieved as he had ever been in his life. I want you to remember that point. I'm going to ask you to hold on to that point for just a few minutes. Because when we get to verse 23, I'm going to come back to it. It's going to matter in the interpretation of what happens in verse 23. But he is deeply grieved. He's inconsolable. He's flat on his face in the ground. He refuses to eat and refuses any help from his friends. That's the status that he's in at this point. And the elders of his household stood beside him. People came alongside as we should. When people are grieving... Let's face it, unless it's a really, really, really good friend, and even then if it is, our tendency as human beings is to not really want to be there. We really don't want to suffer with those who suffer. We really don't want to go through that pain. But you know what? I think that's one of the things that marks off somebody's really good friend from somebody that's just an acquaintance. Because a really good friend will invest in that. A really good friend is going to sit down there right, right by the wife who's just lost her husband. And it's going to put one's arm around them and, and let, her, let her cry on your shoulder. Or a husband that's lost a wife or a parent that's lost a child. We, don't, we won't run away from that, even though it's painful. But you know what? That's part of your duty as a Christian, to treat other Christians that way. They're family. And even though it's painful, it's something that we need to do. And his friends were friends. And they came not just because he's the king, but because they knew that David needed them at that particular moment. Ironically, the spot where David had prostrated himself on the ground is probably very close to the same spot where Uriah spent the night with the other soldiers when he refused to go down to his own home and sleep with Bathsheba. We learned that back in chapter 11, verse 9. Then in verses 18 through 20, then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? Again, I want you to hold that in the back of your mind for a moment. It's going to matter when we get to the interpretation of verse 23. He was distraught, and everybody saw it. Then in verse 19, But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground and washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. How old this child was when the child died, we don't know. There are people that think that the child was seven days old. And that's possible if Nathan came to David on the day of the birth of the child. We don't know how much time passed between verse 27 of chapter 11 and verse 1 of chapter 12. But the child is at least seven days old. And the child is probably an infant. Once it's reported that the child is dead, 
David ceases his prayers for him. There is no biblical validation for prayers that are offered on behalf of the dead. We don't do that as Christians. We pray for those who are left behind. That's perfectly legitimate and perfectly warranted. But once someone has left this earth, our prayers are no longer going to benefit that person. They'll benefit the people that loved that person that are grieving and left behind. I have no doubt that David also prayed for Bathsheba at this point in time. The text doesn't say it, but surely he did. He would have had to pray for this grieving mother. Verse 21. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing you've done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. See, in their mind, that's backwards. You would think that once the death was announced that he would fall apart even more. If he was already fallen apart or inconsolable, I shouldn't say fallen apart, but if he was inconsolable, fasting and weeping and praying with his face in the dirt, when the child was alive, most people would think that once that child died, then he would be totally lost. And then then the real grief would start, and the servants probably wondered, is he even going to do harm to himself or maybe us if something like that happened? His actions stunned those, even those who knew him best. What does David do when he hears the news? He goes and cleans himself up. He anoints himself. He cleans himself, gets dressed, and then he goes and worships. And after he goes to worship, then he goes home. And he orders some food, and he eats. That's not what they expected from the king. His friends assumed that it would get worse for everyone, including David, when the child died. If David was inconsolable when the child was sick, surely he would go mad upon hearing the news of the child's death. But they were wrong. They didn't know David as well as they thought they knew him. I want you to know this behavior, getting up, cleaning himself up, anointing himself, getting dressed, going to worship, coming home and eating, this behavior does not in any way indicate that David wasn't grieved. It doesn't mean that he no longer cared. It was not a say la vie moment. That's life. Time to move on. Stuff happens. No, not at all. No way. David is grieved. But he's comforted. In the New Testament, we would say that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. That text doesn't say we don't grieve upon the death of a loved one or the serious illness of a loved one. It says we don't grieve as those who have no hope. It's the same way here. I'm sure that David's grief was still there. It wasn't phony. That's why I mentioned it a minute ago. He was weeping. He prostrated himself on the ground. He's in semi-public view. This is real grief. And you don't just turn off real grief like that. I think it goes without saying that everybody in this room has had real grief, serious grief. But it doesn't mean 
that you can turn off that grief, that grief like you would a light switch. It doesn't work that way, not in a real human being. In a robot, it might, but not in a real human being. My point is that David grieved before. He continued to grieve, but he did get up, get dressed, clean himself up, go worship, and go home, and he ate. He explains what he does here, the reasons for it, in the last two verses that we'll cover tonight, verses 22 and 23. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he's died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. This final phrase, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me, is understood by the vast majority of commentators as meaning no more than the child cannot come back to life, I will join him in the grave someday. One commentator wrote this, in the context, the issue was the inevitability of death, not what happens after death. The child could not come back to life, but David would someday join him in death. Really? I must have missed something here. The context in this passage is the inevitability of death. Say, lovey, stuff happens, it's over. Time to go back to work. That's the context here? No. No. The context here is of a man deeply grieved over the impending death of a child. And this man is now inexplicably comforted after the child dies. This is the context of a man who gets up, cleans up, and makes an effort to return to some form of normalcy. I'm going to get personal with you now, but I think most of you may know this. But I've got to tell you, I rarely teach anything that departs from the wisdom of the majority of commentators. I do sometimes, but rarely. Sometimes can't help it because there's no majority. I have great respect for the commentary tradition, and I do not depart from the majority view lightly. But I depart here from the majority view here. I fully understand that the Old Testament does not develop the concept of the afterlife like the New Testament does. But David surely understood that there was a destiny after death for the righteous and a different destiny after death for the unrighteous. At least that he understood. In fact, I don't know of very many, even the commentators who hold this other view, I don't know of very many who would argue with that. That, at least that minimalistic thinking, that there was, even in Old Testament, we know that there is a destiny for the righteous and there's a destiny for the wicked. And in this case, we're talking about the positionally righteous or the positionally wicked. That's a bare minimal understanding. I'm fully in agreement with not making a passage say more than it says. 
But I'm also committed to not making a passage say less than it says. It's saying too little to assert that David is simply saying, okay, the child is dead. I can't bring him back. I, too, will one day die. Let's get back to work. That kind of fatalistic thinking is foreign to the context. That's not the context. It's foreign to the context. Where's the explanation for David's behavior? If that's what it was, it was, okay, no sense in praying for him now because he died and I'm going to die someday. We're all going to die. Where's the motivation to get up and get dressed and get yourself clean and go worship and go to your home and go to eat? No, something else is in this context. And it may not be as well developed as the New Testament develops it. But it's not nothing. This is not just a throw-in line. It's not like it's just, well, everybody dies someday. Let's get back to work. That would be a source of the kind of deep depression that David's servants expected for him to have. If that's all he's saying here, that's hopelessness. But yet he has hope. And the hope is not that the kid died, I'm going to die too. Does that give you hope? It wouldn't comfort me very much. So I have to respectfully disagree with the majority. Now, that's, all don't hold that. But a lot of people do. At the very least, at the very least, David is saying that he will join the child in the afterlife. And since David expects to be in that aspect of the afterlife that is reserved for the righteous, he expects his infant son to be in that aspect where he is. And again, I will fully acknowledge that the Old Testament does not develop the afterlife the way the New Testament does. Not even close. But at least that minimal truth has to be accepted. Otherwise, there is no reasonable expectation or explanation for David being okay all of a sudden. It can be inferred from both this passage and from a consideration of God's infinite perfection that a child who dies before reaching the age of accountability will go to heaven. There are those extreme Calvinists who argue that some, or perhaps all babies, are unelect, and therefore they all go to hell. Those who argue that all babies go to hell argue that the elect will surely come to faith in Christ. Babies do not come to faith in Christ. Therefore, babies are elect. The unelect go to hell. Therefore, babies go to hell. Words cannot describe the visceral reaction that that view brings out in me. There are very few theological views that make me want to lose my sanctification and punch somebody in the mouth. But that's one of them. I'm just being honest with you. That's one of them. It is offensive to the max. It's an affront to the very character of God. And a lot of these same people claim the intellectual high ground in Christianity. I don't think so. 
you haven't thought it through. Back to the whole election thing. If that's the case, then we have to believe that all babies, all who are under the age of accountability, are elect. We have to believe it there. But there are some people that cannot, absolutely cannot, fulfill the one condition that God gave. And if they cannot fulfill that one condition, not that they won't, they absolutely have zero possibility. Can you see a little one-year-old that has died and stands before the great white throne? Jesus Christ says, no, well, you're, you're going to hell. They'll be able to talk at that time and say, well, sir, why? I never really had very many coherent thoughts, sir. And I don't mean to be funny. I'm, I'm, I mean, but can you imagine? That is an affront to the integrity of God, to the character of God. Of course not. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a fair and loving and just God. If he took the time and the effort to send his son to die for us, do you think he's going to send children to hell or the mentally handicapped to hell? Not to mention, and if you want to expand it further, the unborn. There are some people that think all the unborn go to hell too that are miscarried or aborted. That's offensive. Now, not all Calvinists do. I'm not saying that, but many extreme Calvinists do. They want to carry it out logically. And it's not true. And, and what they say about this passage is that all David is saying that the child died and then he's going to die. That is no reason to get up, clean up, worship, and eat. It's not enough. In fact, if that was all it was, David would have gone into a deeper depression. Nothing I can do about this. We're all going to die someday. No. So both this passage, I believe, and a careful study of the infinite perfections of God would tell you with complete confidence and you can tell someone else too that if their child has died, that child is in the loving arms of their Savior. Granted, this is the only verse in the Bible that I think directly relates to it, but I think that there are indirect references all the time when it comes to the fairness and the holiness of God. Robert Leitner, my good friend, wrote a book, one of the only ones of its kind, called Faith in the Arms of Jesus. And it was written for this very purpose to demonstrate from this passage and from many others that speak of, of the character of God, that you can give people comfort that have lost a child. Listen, my friends, it's hard enough to lose a child in the first place. But can you imagine the cruelty of telling that parent that the child is not yours? I cannot imagine that. But we can tell them honestly, all babies, all children, all those who were mentally handicapped and never had even an opportunity to make the choice, when they die, they will go to heaven. And listen, I know you know me, and you know I have a vested interest in this. And I'm being objective with you about this. Based upon the Word of God. That is my job. That is my calling in life. My calling in life is not to make up my own theology based upon my own circumstances. My calling in life is to teach you the truth. And that is the truth. All babies, all children, all those who never reach an age of accountability go to heaven. One quick note, what is the age of accountability? I can't tell you. I know in Old Testament, when the whole idea of the Passover and the coming out of Egypt and, and the people who got to go into the land, the age of accountability there seemed to be around 20 years old. Could have been a cultural thing. I suspect today it's a little bit younger than that. But I don't know what the age of accountability is. So let me close by summarizing. Although David is restored to fellowship with God through confession, and he will not die, he still must suffer. Simple comment.